I don't think that many people realize that creating space for young people to just like be together and to laugh and to find joy is also revolutionary in and of itself. Hello and welcome to the Matriarch Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Shayla Olette Stonechild, and I'm super excited to have Riley here with me today. She is a queer and Anishinaabe writer, researcher, and public speaker. And at the age of 15 years old, she was appointed to the Prime Minister's Youth Council, citing in various interviews that the experience was pretty troubling, but inspired her interest in Native politics. As one of the first members of her family to go to university, she completed a double major undergrad at the University of Toronto in Indigenous Studies and Political Science, and then she skipped her master's program, going straight to her PhD, where she is currently studying Indigenous youth and reconciliation. While she works on her PhD, Riley is writing a book called The Reconciliation Generation, and she recently taught a course called Indigenous Governance and Justice at Toronto Metropolitan University, and she's the host of the Red Surgeon podcast, which features conversations by and for Indigenous people. Without further ado, here's Riley. Tanse, thank you so much, Riley, for being here. If you just want to introduce yourself, your pronouns, where you're from. For sure. Miigwech. Ani, folks. Riley Yesno and Indigenikas. My name is Riley Yesno. I am from Edmonton First Nation in Treaty 9 territory. So if folks know where Thunder Bay is, I'd be about 300 kilometers north-ish. But I grew up mostly in Thunder Bay. I live and work in Toronto now. And yeah, Shayla covered a lot of it. I'm, I'm doing my PhD and teaching at uh, Toronto Met. And I'm curious, like, how old are you? Like, right now? Because citing everything that you've done, <laughs> you would think that you you're like way older than you actually are. Yeah. So I'm uh, 23 right now. You're yeah. 23 years old. Oh, wow. Congrats. And I just spent um, my first time in Thunder Bay actually hosting Wake the Giant Music Festival. And that was like okay, an amazing yeah, yeah. experience to get to know more of the community out there. And so what was that experience like for you growing up in Thunder Bay? Yeah, it's so funny because just earlier today, I was talking with a bunch of other folks about the city. Thunder Bay right now is like under a lot of media attention. Uh, It feels like every few years we go through these waves, like we'll have books come out and then like the media attention kind of drops and then there's a podcast and then the Crave series and like it just kind of goes. And I think we're at a high point right now on that wave. So growing up in Thunder Bay, though, I had like, like, I feel like my relationship to it has evolved a lot over the years. So... Yeah, when I was younger living there, like, I I had the experience of one, a level of privilege from other Indigenous folks in the city in that, like, Thunder Bay is really uh, notorious for the way that, like, young people from reserves have to come down into the city to access education or other essential services. And they do so at, like, 13 by themselves. And it's it's really harrowing and violent. And that was something that I uh, didn't experience. So like I got to move down from the res with my family. I had the support of a lot of people. I was much younger and so had a longer like adjustment period. There was a lot of like good things that way. But then I think Thunder Bay is also one of those like take no prisoner cities. So I like, you know, I remember working downtown and like having to 
walk past this like neighborhood every every day to go to my car and like a confederate flag was like Mm. this guy's door and people especially at that time like as we're talking pre-trc pre pre all this attention like nobody was trying to hide their qualms about the racism in the city and so i you know couldn't wait to leave turn 18 and move out and then now that i've been in Toronto for a number of years. I've lived in other places for some time. I find myself missing Thunder Bay so wholeheartedly. (laughs) I miss the lake. I I miss the sleeping giant. I miss uh, just, you know, visible indigenous people everywhere all the time. In that way, Thunder Bay is like no other where it's like you're a part of this big extended uh, urban indigenous family. And I, and I, and I find myself really missing that. So I think I, when I was talking about it earlier, I summed it up as to be from Thunder Bay is to continuously have your heart broken by that city, but then at the Mm. same time, have it made again and again by the, you know, numerous indigenous people who just refuse to live anything other than joy and love and happiness in that place. Yeah, no, that's honestly what I felt when I was at Wake the Giant Music Festival was that there was a community of people supporting one another. And it was almost like, even though I'm not from there, I felt welcomed in by the community. And oftentimes I think, too, like when we're younger, we kind of take those things for granted until we're older and we look back and we're like, wow, I really miss this spot about my roots. or I miss my hometown for this reason. And I imagine sometimes Toronto can be a little disorientated because you don't have that direct connection to the land from where you're from. And so I know you said that you moved to Toronto a few years ago, but what was that decision-making process for you? Why did you choose Toronto moving? And what when did you move to Toronto? Oh, yeah. So uh, I moved to Toronto at the start of my undergrad. So like just after my 18th birthday, I came here to do my undergrad. And I very quickly realized that, well, first say that I've, I've met in my time a lot of Toronto haters, and I don't consider myself one of them. I love Toronto. <laughs> and I, I think it's great. And I know a lot of people who come here and they're like, oh, but I love the way, firstly, that Toronto taught me a lot about solidarity with other oppressed peoples, with other peoples, you know, struggling under similar systems of domination. And like there was always like growing up in the north, like there was always the sense that, you know, this was like our land and our home. And then I came here and saw um, just like these communities of diaspora folks, people mm. who made entire um, homes for themselves and and community and space outside of what might be their traditional territories. Um, and so it really taught me to honor uh, coexisting in that way. But then on the flip side of it, like I, I remember being in my dorm for my first year and meeting these students It was like, oh, their parents were already doctors and their older siblings were like already doing like on their PhDs and they had all of this money and that they didn't even have to be in residence. They were just like here just just because. Yeah. (laughs) And (laughs) I was there like if I didn't have my band funding, I would be like just swallowed up by the city. So there was also I felt like really for the first time alienated in a way that I hadn't been by just this like overwhelming. Um, class divide. And so that took me a long time, I think, to to bridge and sort of find communities and pockets that were outside of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think even for me, when I moved to Vancouver at the age of 18, it was also through funding from my band. And I also just thought, 
I, I was given like the privilege to have that funding, but then to see other people just have that access to education just at that just a free ride it felt like for for me witnessing that and so I can't imagine like also witnessing that in Toronto but also I feel like you really had a shift of your perception at the age of 15 because you're appointed to the prime minister's youth council and so I'm kind of kind of curious how that came to be and what was how did that shift your consciousness being within the prime minister's youth council at the age of 15 yeah so I think when I was that age, like, you know, in grade 10, I think is when I applied. A lot of people, I got the message like all of the time that I think a lot of like little brown kids do, um, which is that if you're in any bit like successful within the colonial structures of like academia or you speak the the white man's English very well, um, they're like, you're going to be the prime minister someday. <laughs> and <Yeah>. so... <laughs> I really like took that and I was like, oh, wow, like that must be the pinnacle of what change making is like the highest thing I could aspire to. And so like it became this like very romantic goal in my head. And so that's what I why I applied in the first place, because I was like, this is it. And I got there and. I felt, first of all, very, like, tokenized. I, I thought we were going to go there and, and change, like, a lot of things for youth, talk about our communities. And just in so many ways, like, the the racism and the disregard and all of these violences that were taking place in those rooms, like, completely shattered my worldview very quickly. If anything radicalized me, it was probably the Prime Minister's Youth Council. And... <laughs> Isn't that how it works, I, like, though? <laughs> Yeah, you need something. <laughs> I remember like the, the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back was like I made these T-shirts for Wet'suwet'en at the time, like the first sort of raids of the Unistoten camp were going on. And so at this point, I had given up all kind of hope that anything I said to the prime minister was going to like change his mind on policies. And so like I was like the the most I can do here is kind of be a shit disturber. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> I... <laughs> So I had these t-shirts made and I knew that there was always going to be media wherever he goes. And I thought it would be really powerful to have like all of these young people that are supposed to work for him wearing these things that blatantly disregard or, or go against what his kind of stances were at the time. When I got there, somebody had told the staff, the prime minister staff, that I had planned this and bought these shirts and brought them all here. And so like it got clocked really quick and shut down really quickly. And people started talking to them about like, be wary if you want to get jobs in the public service. And you're going to make the meeting all about this. Like other people have things they want to talk about too. And like, just like a real divide and conquer and like scare tactic-y type feeling. And so that was it for me. And I quit at the end of that meeting, pulled all the people in the room and was just like, this is not it. And so I, I left not really knowing what I was going to do after that and, and kind of feeling a bit hopeless in a way, like just like, oh, wow, I was told my whole life that this was going to be the change that everyone was waiting for. And like it absolutely wasn't only to have then like indigenous 
elders and community members and other young people like kind of pick me up by the back of my collar, like dust me off and be like, no, no, there's change happening here in other ways. And you have a lot of knowledge here to inherit from us. And mm. I, and I tried to. Yeah, that was my going to be my next question, actually, because we have seen quite a few Indigenous women and Indigenous people go through the House of Commons and then get chewed up and then spit out right away. And oftentimes they're hit with a huge burnout and, you know, sometimes they're hit with depression and all these other things that came from the House of Commons itself. And so how, when you are resisting and fighting against a, a systems of oppression, how do you reclaim your power and reclaim your connection to your spirit? Like what drives you every day? Oh man. First, I really agree with you in terms of, I saw the role like that indigenous women, indigenous, like people generally in these systems that are, are meant to kill us, like, and are trying to find ways to do good work in there. And like, one of the things that like really was transformative for me in being able to like, let go of that was realizing, um, th- the, the real, the value of this one um, organizing ethic that says revolution takes all tactics, all battlegrounds. So I was like, I'm not going to discount the work that um, folks who are trying to do work within systems to make them less violent or to like ward off more, more deepening of colonialism, the, the work that they do. But at the same time, um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the end all be all. I had to learn that first. And that no space, whether it was writing that I tried to do afterwards, or then I was like, maybe I'll, I'll go do some art, that none of them is going to be like, I can't carry the weight of, of, of the world on those shoulders. And so learning then to figure out just where is the mix of both my skills the best, the community need the best, and where I have this like fire that like is to that point where it doesn't feel like work in some ways, people might say. And if I can find a mix of all of those things, that's probably the place to be. And so uh, it at least just gave me some level of focus so that I'm not spending so much energy burning myself out here and like torturing myself about what I couldn't do there and like all of those sort of things. What are the values that you live by as a queer and an Anishinaabe woman? Ooh, some of, I'm like, I'm trying to think there's so many. (laughs) I think I'm like, I'm really trying to um, work on uh, reclaiming what I understand as like core values, not just for Anishinaabe folks, but I think for a lot of Indigenous nations, which are like recognizing the ways in my life that I've been taught things like individualism and then trying to think about how can I replace that with collectivism? Where have I been taught to act out of fear of scarcity and how can I turn that into abundance? And all of those ways are like a real ongoing project of changing that in the mind. I also am trying to practice rest and joy as much as I am this like really fiery passion. I think I, um, I got really caught up in a lot of readings from like revolutionary thinkers who talk about like the power of rage and the power of indignance. And, and certainly like those are of course, like really powerful energies, but at the end of the day, I think it's that underlying love that makes us intolerant of injustice in the first place. That is what brings us to those really transformative places. And so honoring that and like trying to tend to it in a more careful way. So yeah, it's not burnout central up in here. <laughs> That's good to hear. And I think oftentimes um, we come back to our communities and we come back to that collective care to support us during those times of burnout or maybe feeling like isolated. Finding places with joy 
joy and rest so that we can nourish our well-being. Because I also think the revolution is tied to our healthcare, is tied to our self-care, is tied to our community care. And so I'm curious to know a bit more about your experience with the youth council in the regards to working with other indigenous youth and coming together collectively to work together. What was that experience like for you? And what has your experience been like to now be shifting out of that and now be doing all the things that you're working on currently? I actually think the time I got to work most with other Indigenous youth was spaces outside of the youth council. Like the youth council gave me maybe a door um, that I was able to like walk into like other spaces that I wanted to be in more. And so like I started doing a lot of stuff with for ours youth movement and uh, Nietzsche Studios back in Thunder Bay and like Canadian Roots Exchange back in the day. And so from there, what I realized and it was it was a real like transformative thing for me um, is the way that like at Nietzsche Studios, for example, um, which is like a organization that puts on free art programming for Indigenous youth and will like often like pay the bus fare and have food and like all of these things for youth to come out and just do some art um, is the way that young people would talk about that sort of programming and that sort of access was as if it was like revolution, right? Mm. Like as if we had torn down (laughs) a system and like, it was just the, it was the impact was so profound. And it also made me realize that like, there is different sites of revolutionary power. There is like, of course, these very grand structural, maybe decolonial, if we want to use that word projects, but then there's also like, I don't think that many people realize that creating space for young people to just like be together and to laugh and to find joy is also revolutionary in and of itself. Shifting out into the broader world after after the youth council and kind of like um, a, a lot of that youth work. I don't know. (laughs) I'm trying to think about what I've been doing for the last two years. The pandemic has been one of those things. I mean, like everybody was like, I feel like really bad after like was being cut off from their communities. But like, it was like, not just also like on a personal level, it was all my professional life. It was like all of those things. And suddenly I was like stuck in my laptop at home. And so it's been like a weird kind of couple of years, but it has also introduced the need to like meet in a, in a much more deliberate way. I can't expect that I'm just going to go out and like, uh, see you on the conference trail type thing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) you have to like cultivate, uh, those relationships in a much more deliberate way, which has been a, a change, but a good practice. Well, and I think cultivating those relationships, um, after the pandemic or during the pandemic, even right now, we're still during the pandemic. Um, one way is, through social media. And I know that you've written for CBC, the Globe and Mail. You're, you've written a lot of beautiful articles. I'd even realized you interviewed me for one for CBC yeah. as well. <laughs> uh, and so what do you, what do you think about the conversations that are happening online recently? Like, do you feel like we can actually create a lot of change collectively through social media or should we maybe be starting to take different actions elsewhere? That's a good question because part of my uh, PhD studies is in social movements and like what sort of social and political movements people are doing. And like in the 21st century, of course, like digital activism, it's it's been like the most transformative thing I would argue in, in organizing like since the radio. <laughs> and so I see that 
first of all, it's an inevitability. Um, and so I try to like get myself out of a place of thinking like, is it good or is it bad? What should we do about it? Um, and instead just accepting that it's kind of part of the landscape and like trying to hone what's best and mitigate what's worst. And what's best about it, of course, is that it allows us to amplify voices in ways that we've never seen before, bring people into conversations that might not have otherwise ever had access. Those things are, are super important. And like, uh, to the point about storytelling, like I understand storytelling as like, not just important for like spreading information, but like once you hear a story, it's supposed to inform something about you. You're supposed, you can't ever unhear it. Right. And so it's supposed to actually move something inside of you. Good storytelling, I think. But then on the flip side of it, I remember reading Leanne Simpson's articles about Idle No More and the way that she saw Idle No More, which was organized largely in online spaces, that those online relationships lended to fickle solidarities in that they had no real obligations to each other outside of the screen, that uh, when there were fights, they were kind of out there in public for everybody to see. It made us easier to surveil um, when we were trying to do things. So like there are already people talking about the ways that social media can harm us. And I think maybe it's just a matter um, of being vigilant against those um, so that we can can try and mitigate the inevitability of social media in our organizing lives. Yeah, well, I'm actually kind of a little bit concerned with where social media is headed within Canadian content itself. I don't know if you heard of like Bill C-11 and like the Bill C-10 where they're trying to regulate Canadian content creators as if they're a network itself, like CBC. And I know having worked at CBC, you probably have run into regulations that you also have to follow. Um, I did speak to another CBC journalist that was just saying like, I'm not even allowed to say the word land offender. And so what is it like working Working within an industry that maybe, you know, oftentimes tries to not erase your voice, but like uh, capture in a way that's like acceptable, I guess, for the larger, yeah, yeah. the larger society. Like what has that been like for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely frustrating. I'm thinking of like an example of when I was working for CBC and like the, uh, I was working in the indigenous bureau and it was probably the best place in CBC to be working. But then it, like, it was a really harsh reality when I was uh, trying to write something. And then they were like, you can't use the word queer. We don't uh, let people use that. And I was like, oh, but the, this person that I'm interviewing uses that word to identify themselves. And they're like, you still can't use it. And, um, <laughs> or like I, they'd have their pronouns and I just started using their pronouns that they told me it was. And then they're like, oh, but if they use anything outside of like the standard assumption of pronouns, you're going to have to make a statement about mm, it to, oh, to wow. like let everyone know. And so like, you, to, yeah, just another example of, I think, your point of the guardrails that they um, put up to try and, uh, yeah, corral the voice in some sort of way. I mean, it sucks. <laughs> For me, sometimes when we are on social media, it's almost like you fight to self-censor yourself because you know that either you'll get shadow banned, maybe on Twitter, you'll get your uh, a whole account deleted on Instagram, you'll get, you know, red flagged on all these things. And so it is kind of like, how do we mobilize not just on social media, but also coming back to the grassroots level, coming back to our communities offline. Like you had mentioned, it's such like community care is so important. So these are oftentimes the questions that 
what I'm thinking about is like, okay, well, how do we take this off the screens and into our communities and into our cities and, and having access to also the youth that don't live in the cities that are living on the reserves that maybe don't even have access to Wi-Fi or to social media itself, you know? So these are just questions that I'm also thinking about. Yeah, yeah, no, totally fair. I feel like, I feel like that there's uh, no super perfect answer, but I do think about the case studies, I guess I'll find of like community organizing um, that is really inspiring is of uh, the red power movement that was started out in BC first and the way that they built solidarity with Indigenous people in the province all throughout it and then also across the border. And they just like went out and and did it. They physically drove down and, and did those things. And this is not something that's accessible to everyone and at all times. But it's something that I also think we forget is, is a possibility when it is so easy and to connect only in online, online yeah. ways. There's no power, I think, more powerful than um, those in-person sort of connections. And I was talking about this earlier today, too, in my conversation about Thunder Bay is like one of the things I found really stark about living in Toronto, um, where there is like a lot of wealth and professional organizers, like nonprofits that have budgets like that are, are, are massive and like all of these sorts of things is that like there's um, sometimes this real tie to whether it is social media or like, I need to get this grant. Otherwise the work work is not going to be done. That sort of logic. Like, but we forget that people have been organizing in times before social media, before the government was willing to give us any sort of pennies. And so we like have the tools already um, to do the work. It is a mat and we can do it with zero dollars. It's just a matter of leaning on that organizing tradition and on that knowledge. And I don't think that's something that everybody uh, necessarily has, even if they might consider themselves like an activist or a a person in those spaces these days. Yeah, that actually brought to mind the word decolonization, which I haven't been using as much lately because I felt like there was just, it's very different depending who you talk to. And I think it also got co-opted as like this, I don't know, it was just like a word that started being thrown around. So I'm curious to know like how you would define decolonization. But the reason I thought of that was almost like, how can I even decolonize my own mind in terms of like, that's that's something I've even done where it's like, I can't do this unless I have grants. I can't do this unless I have funding. I can't do this unless I get accepted by this organization or this person. And so even my frame of thinking has to almost be decolonized from that perception alone. And so how would you define the term decolonization um, within your own words? Okay, so yeah. Decolonization is definitely a buzzword. I agree. Right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, I think of decolonization as a very tangible material process of eliminating coloniality, whether it's from the larger institutional structures down to like uh, the communal level or to the individual level. It is this active process of elimination for the purpose of resurgence is how I start to think about it. And like, so like a lot of people will say, for example, that like having indigenous voices in the media is decolonizing the media. Right. And I'm like, it isn't. It isn't, yeah. Because it's, it's a <laughs> like, colonial system and entity in itself. So. <laughs> yeah. And like, we can say, like, 
representation, I'll never say is a bad thing, but we can know that it's also not revolution. But so I think one of the the things I've come to realize recently is that like, for every time that I start telling myself like something is impossible or like that's absurd in some way, I remember that like one of the more sinister things about colonialism that we often forget is that it really stunts the creativity of people. That it's it's very strict in telling us what is possible and what isn't. And always what it tells us is possible is something that stops us as Indigenous people from flourishing or helps colonialism proliferate. And so I think about that a lot when I've I've been doing a lot of writing in recent years about land back. And when I do it, always for non-Indigenous people, and sometimes for Indigenous people too, the like number one thing that I'll come back and say is like, but how is that possible? And like, I don't understand. And wouldn't that just be like reverse colonialism? <laughs> like some people will say. And I'm like, it's actually colonialism that makes you think that only violent displacement is like a possibility for what a nation could look like, for what living in this space could be. And like, I have to remind myself that colonialism seeps into all the nooks and crannies in ways that I won't even recognize until I see there. But oftentimes that the feeling of there's no possible way or I'm really unsure about this is an indicator that I'm leaning on some colonial logic there. Mm. Yeah, well, I think oftentimes Landback is maybe discussed in a philosophical sense too with some of the stuff that I see online. And so I think in a tangible way, you know, what are actions that we could take as Indigenous people to be a part of this land back movement? Would you have any advice for Indigenous youth out there that are wanting to get more involved? Yeah. Oh, I love it. So one of the things that I'll say, I, I like I've done a lot of look at case studies of people of what I would consider like land back in action. And one of the things about it is just that land back necessarily can't wait for permission from colonial states to get these things back. It takes a level of of boldness and braveness to demand the land back and then to say, I don't care if you're going or going to, you know, agree to this or not. But so like, for example, I think that land back is also bigger than just occupation or uh, asserting jurisdiction. Like there's like the physical land itself. But as I understand land back, it has grown to be about something much larger, which is reclaiming all of the culture and practices and um, knowledges that are tied to us being on these lands. Maybe, you know, standing at the protest line isn't your vibe. If it is, that's amazing. And I think that there's a ton of places that you can do that, certainly. (laughs) But then also like food sovereignty is land back. You making a local community garden on land that would otherwise be used for what? Condos um, is land back. You um, insisting that the names of places be returned to what they previously were pre-colonization and petitioning for that or organizing for that is also land back. So like, um, I think there's also room within that to think beyond like strictly territoriality 
although that is one really important part of it, into like all of the larger things. And I also want to uh, emphasize like one thing that um, the scholar and poet uh, Erica Violet Lee, she said to me once at a con- when we were on a panel together, and I just thought it was so beautiful and profound, was that we often forget in like how good of a slogan Land Back is because it feels really good. Yeah. It's just saying to be like, yeah, Land Back. <laughs> Hell yeah. Just period. But- <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? But I'm like, she said, and it's true, is that like, if we got the land back tomorrow, that doesn't mean that our community is, that our communities rather, haven't gotten rid of patriarchy that we've internalized over the years or haven't uh, unlearned like all of the ways that colonialism has again seeped into all of those corners of us. And so I think we can and we will get that land back. But I also hope that when it ta- when we get there, that we're ready um, to instill a future that is radically different than the ones that are currently here. And so we're not recreating that. And that's work that has to happen now. Never mind, like, you know, um, a dissolution of Canada or something like that. So all of that stuff that you might be doing in your communities that way is, I think, part of the broader movement, too. Well, and I think when we think land back, it almost seems like there's a disconnection that the land was, you know, taken away, which in uh, it has been. But when you think of it in a relational sense, like we're always we're always in relation to the land, like the land has never left our relations. We can still be in kinship to that land. So really land back is still within us, I believe. And I think when we look to our futures, we look to the land back movement, but we also we look to this concept of indigenous futurism and like you had mentioned, radically imagining our future that has yet to be done. And so when you think of indigenous futurism, how would you paint a picture? Like in your eyes, what would you love to see indigenous futures look like? Oh, I love this question. I've been doing a lot of talks about it recently. So there's a couple parts of it. One is going again off of Erica Violet Lee. Everyone can tell I love her. Is that uh, <laughs> she has the quote that um, she sees futurism as the practice of imagining all that could have been if it weren't for the interruption of colonialism. And I really like that term to say that like one of the things that I think is one of, uh, is is really tragic of the many things that are about colonialism is that like we never. N- we, in a way, uh, don't know what we could have evolved to at this point. Um, that, like, we have never been a stagnant people. We are the most adaptable people I know. And so um, for people who say, like, you would have never had technology type, <laughs> type sort of thing, like, which is, like, you know, every um, anti-Indigenous racist favorite talking point is, like, that it's, like, you just also don't know because you never gave Indigenous people the space and the time and the power that we would have had otherwise. And so, like, yeah, we could be light years ahead uh, right now if we had had, had that. Um, and so when I think about futurism... I think about going back in a way to the value systems and to the ethics and in many ways, economies, economies of care that existed at that time and making them relevant in the present day. And then at the same time, um, taking a lot of the gifts, and this is something maybe tying it back to my original comments about like Toronto teaching me what it is to be in community with other people far different than my own, other Indigenous people from all over the place is like that it also we have connection that allows for sharing and in growth 
in ways that I, at least at the time then were were not possible for our ancestors. Maybe some at least. I know some people were were big travelers, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my people, yeah, creep people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and so I'm like, but I just feel like, yeah, we've uh, built some some infrastructure of ease that could make for the for borrowing and sharing in good ways that we can't really imagine. So I don't know. Uh, there's like uh, rather than painting a picture of like I don't know what type of buildings we'd have and like we would <laughs> how much better off the environment would be and all those things I think I end up thinking about it really theoretically in terms of like what would it feel like you know mm-hmm. and I think it ties back to what you said at the beginning of like how can we honor our rest and our joy a little bit more while we're fighting for the revolution itself and I do want to ask you um, before we wrap things up because I do feel like there is a movement happening also with non-indigenous people wanting to support the land back movement and wanting to support all that we're advocating for. And so what would your advice be for non-Indigenous people wanting to be allies and supporters of everything that's happening within our communities right now? Yeah. Always. I don't know if this, if you find this. <laughs> I saw the little eye. <laughs> I was thinking of, um, I don't know if you found this, but like whenever I give a talk, like the number one question that's always asked afterwards is like, but what can I do? That's, that's why I'm asking because I know it's going (laughs) to be asked. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It totally is. And like, I always say to those people and not trying to be dismissive or flippant, but is to say like, I always ask, well, who are you? Because I think that um, I could tell you to like, go read these books and to go, um, you know, do this work. But what, the reality of this is, is that change and uh, revolution will happen in a, re- I think, in a really localized way. And so, what you need to be doing is building relationships with Indigenous people who are already doing the work around you, who, uh, once they trust you, will let you know what you can offer them and what is needed of you. And so, and that is something that, like, will be far more revolutionary, I promise you, than like reading uh, the TRC, even though, of course, that work's important, right? So, there's that. But then I also, usually have like a checklist I give people about like questions that you have to very That's honestly sweet. be able to ask yourself. Okay, you got a checklist. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like I, I say one is can you accept before you go there that you are the beneficiary of colonialism? A lot of people like are like are willing to maybe appreciate Indigenous struggle in theory, but so long as they are not implicated in the harms of it. And if they, if you can't do that, you can't actually fully understand um, the scope of, of the structure. Two, can you accept that colonialism is this all-encompassing um, structure? And so you will perpetuate it. Um, you will uphold it in your life against all of your best efforts, that you will not be a perfect ally, and that you have to be okay with the failure of that and then being called in when those times inevitably come. It's like the saying, there's no ethical way to live under capitalism. The same thing applies here, that there's no ethical way to live under colonialism. Lastly, uh, I also try and ask, like, do you truly believe that radical Indigenous futures are possible and worthwhile? And so I think a lot of people 
they want Indigenous people to stop suffering, but they're not necessarily um, fully there when it comes to believing that we actually mean when we say land back and mm. like that that is like the goal and that um, a future in which their place on the hierarchy that colonialism affords them and their friends and their neighbors, that that will have to be sacrificed if you truly are in it for the movement. And so if you don't believe that those things are possible or you aren't sure you even want them, then there's no point in asking me what you can do because we're not working to build the same things. Those three sort of questions, I think, are like um, really fundamental before you can do the work in a way that I would consider at least meaningful. Mm, Yeah, it's like you can't really co-opt and just pick and choose which one you want to follow. It's like you accept all these three and be with us (laughs) (laughs) or awas. No. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Riley, for joining me here today. Uh, Where can people support your work and follow you and support everything that you're up to? Yeah, well, um, if folks want to follow me, I am on Twitter at Riley Yes No Maybe. I also um, have a podcast of my own where I talk more about Indigenous resurgence, and it is called Red Surgeons, and you can find that everywhere that you get your podcasts and at RileyYesNo.com. Me too. Thank you. Hi, hi for listening to the show. If you like the podcast, check your podcast app now to make sure you're subscribed. I'm Shayla Olette Stonechild. You can find me along with more info on Matriarch Movement on Instagram at Shayla0H. And my podcast producer is Katie Lore. And I'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>